Beautiful, beautiful Friday evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rethink Culture, where culture scientists explore from a three-pronged perspective, because how one shows up is exactly the same way as how they exist at home, society, workplace, or in the school space that they are in. Today's topic is really exciting and at the same time controversial, but at the same time it is a topic that needs to be discussed, that needs to have honest conversations. All right. Again, welcome to another episode of Reading Culture. If you are new, welcome to another episode. Please do give it a thumbs up on YouTube, on Twitter, wherever that you're following from, on Facebook. Please also write in the comments where you are tuning in from and tell us what has been the highlight of your week this week. This series is made possible by Chief of Hearts, a culture science company. I'm your host, Mila Dufault, founder and CEO of Chief of Hearts. Today, I will be dismantling toxic femininity, specifically with white women at the workplace, and bringing light to how toxic femininity can impact the workplace negatively, and it can cause psychological turmoil to one. So to dismantle toxic femininity and to enable diversity through the four ships, which is allyship, sponsorship, partnership, and heartship, we have two brilliant guests to explore further. So let me bring them on one by one. So the first guest I have is Adam Rosenfeld. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hello. Adam is, hello. Adam is an HR, DNI, talent acquisition, and employer brand enthusiast who is trying to make the world around him better. Thank you for being here, Adam. Thank you. My, you're welcome. My second guest is Arnalie Sapunsky. Arnalie is an educator, a political scientist, a justice seeker, and a good friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> We've had really good conversations before, so welcome, Arnalie. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mila. <clears throat> You're welcome. Thank you. So, <laughs> I just want to start like deep diving this this topic. But first, in order to build contacts, right? In order to build contacts, uh, let's discuss about let's discuss a little bit about what toxic femininity means and how and where can it show up in our society because we often see toxic masculinity right just to the recent climate recent incident of what aoc had experienced right and on on the flip side we're going to talk about toxic femininity you know women do uh, show up as uh, 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 not sure, but show aggression in the spaces that they show up in, and it gets even worse when women of color share the space with them. So let's start for a conversation. What does toxic femininity mean from your perspective and from your exposure? Um. I mean, I guess I can start. I don't know if Annalise wanted to start, but it's interesting that that's it's interesting that you brought up. Oh, do you want to start? Oh, it doesn't matter. You can go. Oh, I'm well, what you, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's 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 just interesting that you bring up the AOC and 
Ted Yoho thing because, and then we talk about toxic femininity because six months ago, um, you talk about women and women of color the way that Nancy Pelosi, for example, uh, referred to you know AOC, Ilan, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and in in kind of like a degrading way, and you you know talk like toxic masculinity, for example, shows up. It's like oh, it shows up. You know, for example, when men don't display masculine traits, you know, they show emotion, um, and toxic femininity shows up a little more subtler. Um, it, it, and it's more about like the, 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 in, in my opinion, it's more like the individual relationships, but I think more and more what we're seeing is, is just the, um, when sometimes people get in power, uh, there was a study that came out, like women and male bosses share like the exact same traits. And so it's starting to show in terms of, you know, the backstabbing, the, um, the, yeah, the subtle jabs and, and even comes up to, to harassment. So um, I'm gonna let Annalise go from there. Yeah, so when I think about like toxic, you know, femininity, um, it kind of reminds me, you know, we're talking about like current events, but a little bit how the Central Park, what was it, the Central Park Karen, um, I forget her name, she's like the physical therapist in the Central Park who um, I think used like her, you know, I think two things were, were happening at time, like racism and, you know, people like the, inherent belief that like, you know, sexism exists, right? So she, you know, kind of portrays herself as like a victim and then uses, you know, she's powerless and things like these. So she used like feminine traits to essentially do her best to get somebody in trouble. So I think a lot of what toxic femininity has to is it's, you know, I think it's, you know, situational, just like you talked about, but it's, you know, using these like stereotypically feminine traits to, you know, maybe bully others or like have internalized like misogyny or, you know, I think it's, you know, when you're talking to Mila about like, you know, being women of color in, you know, certain workspaces, I think it's, you know, using that and, you know, othering other women using like kind of this basis of what, you know, stereotypical femininity is. So I think it's, yeah, I do think it's a bit more subtle. I think that's why there's, you know, so much written on toxic masculinity, but, you know, not much on the other, you know, on the other topic. But I think it's interesting to explore, like, right now. And I'm curious to hear, like, how you kind of define it, Mila, with your experiences being both, you know, coming from, you know, somewhere else, not being, you know, always in the United States, having work experience elsewhere, and, you know, being, you know, a woman of color. I'm curious. So... That's a, a great question. I'm so excited to share as well. So toxic femininity has got multiple layers, right? And not just looking from a very singular lens from the United States, um, but having that opportunity of uh, being born in a different country, having lived in multiple places and countries has allowed me to see how toxic femininity pans out, uh, even within colorism and racism, right, in various races as well. So I like to use the term dominant culture. Dominant culture in the United States um, for, just because dominant culture are the white population. So whenever a white population mainstreams, mainstreams the way you speak, mainstreams what leadership is supposed to be, mainstreams 
how someone is supposed to share out mainstreams, what interview processes should be, how a resume should be, the mainstreaming, or in other terms, I like to call it colonization, right? Uh, and making it mainstream kind of eliminates someone else's identity. And I that's how I coined the dominant culture. Now take that and transfer it in different countries, right? Different countries where it is a multi-important, it's a diverse population, countries like Singapore, Malaysia, or Europe, right? And Britain. So, or, or, or even like China, it's becoming more diverse as well. In different parts of those spaces, the dominant culture becomes the fairer-skinned people. So in places like Singapore and Malaysia, because Singapore is a... It's headquartered to many international countries, many international companies. So a lot of companies have their headquarters over there. And at the same time, you have locals representing the top leadership. Locals, this is where the, a different layer comes into place, right? Different layer of the dominant culture being the lighter skinned Asian or the lighter skinned ethnicity where they will take on the uh, pos position of power. So with all of those layers comes the privilege, right? When privilege is given, when a dominant culture is present, that dictates how other groups are treated or other groups are, are isolated. And class comes into place, right? Because when we put people into different groups or different classes of hierarchy, it creates this social disparity where they're trying to gauge people are based on the color of the skin, based on the nationality, based on their background. And that is an important layer that we are missing. Uh, and it, it becomes even more <laughs> layered when it happens within the same gender, right? Um, being, uh, being in different parts of the world and being an immigrant woman in the United States, I see that happening a lot where it's just not... Uh, where you are segregated as a colored person, but being an immigrant plays a different role as well, different layer to it as well. So toxic femininity pans out in the form of segregation of class, and class can be which country that you're from. Class can also be which kind of sub-ethnicity are you from, even though we belong in the same gender. It also comes in the form of the narrative that you hear. What kind of narratives that the dominant culture they have coined? For example, I can give a lot of examples as to at the workplace specifically when someone uh, is from a different country, you hear the narratives of, oh, this is not exactly how we say it in the United States. This is not how we do it in this country. That's a dismissive narrative. That's toxic femininity, right? And taking on the persona of, uh, a kindergarten teacher, right, where you kind of like change your tone and try to speak softer and slower to people of colour. And that's a kind of toxic femininity as well, because you're taking on this kindergarten teacher. When you, when you What comes to your mind when you talk about kindergarten teachers? A, a female, right, having this soft-spoken feminine trait, and that's the kind of toxic behaviour that comes up when we talk about femininity. So those are some aspects I've seen, not just in the United States, but it's a common denominator uh, around the globe. Can you, can you, t so something interesting you talked about was talking about 
toxic femininity in some in subcultures. And I think that not a lot of people know and understand that. Like within cultures, even like even within immigrant groups in the United States, like we that there is that sort of there is sort of that toxicity. Can you explain? Can you go a little further in that? Because I think that's a really interesting uh, thing that doesn't get explored much. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a nuance to layer too. I'm going to keep it really short. So within the immigrant community, there's a large immigrant community in the United States, right? It's just not people coming from Britain, but people coming in from all parts of the world, from Africa to to the Middle East, to South Asia, to Southeast Asia. So when immigrants come together, there's even colorism within the immigrant community. For example, uh, this is something that I've noticed and I spoke with the South Asian community. So usually South Asians are from the uh, countries of India, Pakistan, um, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. So colorism is inherently present in those cultures, in those communities. And it's interesting how someone of fairer skin gets a preference as opposed to a darker skin person, even though this from the same area or specific area from those those space, right? And it's interesting how even the narratives uh, used against them or onto them differs as to the unconscious bias comes into place or the conscious bias comes into place where they will make jokes as to oh uh, you know your boss is from the your same state so you can speak your same language and eat the same speak uh, same food it becomes really derogative right if for example if you were to go and tell a black person in the united states oh you can go mix around with your same people and eat the same food that you want that becomes so condescending and that's exactly how it translates to those immigrant groups um, within the United States or when they live in different places. And that our narratives where comes off as fresh off the boat. I've heard a lot of people impose this term onto people who are coming from China, people who are coming from India or people who are coming from Africa where the term fresh off the boat is used. So those are some narratives which it becomes really toxic and how it creates such a tug of war within the same communities. Cool. So, yeah, so <laughs> I know we can go deeper into this, but just to transition into, so now we have explored how toxic femininity can be present right in spaces i want to i want to go deeper into how it can manifest at the workplace right um to annalise your point you mentioned about you, you mentioned about that person at central park who was the vp of the company right so uh, i want to ex explore how can toxic femininity manifest at the workplace uh, are they what you have seen what you've heard or what you've read uh, i'd like to hear both of your input on this yeah when i think of a lot of like how you know i feel like whenever you're in kind of board meetings and things like that i've seen this where a lot of women will i kind of pause a little bit or say things to make sure they're like palatable um you know just trying to appeal to like other people and not to like rock the boat too much when i feel like you know I feel for like some men can just kind of go in there and just, you know, feel very pretty confident in doing that. 
And then I kind of feel like there's this othering if women aren't that way. So I think when you have a woman that kind of comes there, you know, very assertive, you know, we apply other words to like that person. Um, I think how we can weaponize other stereotypes to bring other like women down, particularly like women of color, um, you know, and you kind of see maybe some microaggressions popping up. Maybe we'll ascribe like a black woman is being angry in like these workplaces and then try to make her become more of what we think a woman should be. Maybe we'll, you know, just kind of hearing from your own experiences, Mila, you know, not being, you know, originally from, you know, the United States um, and how, you know, people have corrected you and told you to be a bit more meek in like these rooms as well. So I think it's, you know, kind of women policing other women to not take as much space. Um, you hear that a lot and it's kind of disappointing, but, you know, I think that for, you know, a handful of women that, you know, kind of police other women, there's a lot of younger women, I think, breaking, you know, trying to shift that paradigm and it's a relief, especially, you know, seeing a lot of younger girls, teenagers, you know, even, you know, kids, you know, in middle school or high school, you kind of show them how to be a bit more vocal and hopefully you can start shifting things. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. <clears throat> I hear you as to, you know, how um, there are narratives as to how how women are expected to behave a certain way, are expected to speak a certain way, right? And you mentioned about the boardroom. Um, during <laughs> during my corporate tenure, I have witnessed a lot of toxic femininity where it comes from females, right? Especially uh, white females who are in position of power where normally they will target the colored women to take notes right who becomes the transcriber or take notes or to buy coffee or to go get food for the team where they have to do all the cleaning up i say cleaning up as to uh, it can be again taking notes buying lunch for the team uh, organizing birthday parties for the team right usually taking on that femininity uh role as to as to often people think that it's not of importance so so you know assigning tasks which is of not that much importance onto a colored woman at the workplace by white women displays toxic femininity and it's a form of i'm not going to say microaggression it's still an aggression um and it has got granular impacts but my question I would like to pose to Adam is, if you are in the boardroom, let's say if you are in a meeting with white women and colored women and colored men, if you see someone like a white woman saying, or, you know, directing a colored person saying, oh, you will be taking notes today. Or, and then you see that happening every week or every other week, or you see uh, a colored people being targeted to do uh, go buy coffee, go buy lunch, to do the household chores. How would you respond to that, Adam? Yeah, so I, I would respond in, in sort of a variety of ways because I've, I've seen that happen before um, where it's like you're automatically, you know, where, 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 where in the workplace that happens. And for me, I mean, the first thing I, I would do is speak up and I'd say, hey, no, you know, I think – I mean, number one, if people are taking notes and you have these like weekly board meetings, spread the notes around. Like take them, take, you know, take 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 them yourself. Um, 
And also taking them yourself as well allows you to, um, uh, allows you to, you know, get an idea of, of what's in the meeting and also uh, allows you to amplify their, uh, allows you to amplify their voice. Um, another thing, another thing I've done is, is almost clap back and said, no, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go get the coffee because I, I think, you know, and I think that whole getting the coffee thing and getting the food thing is weird. Um, because you shouldn't, you know, the, the whole stereotype is no, get the intern to do it. And it's like, you know what, you know, you have DoorDash or Grubhub or Favor or Uber Eats, like put it on your phone, do it. And, you know, as a, as a leader, as a leader, take the lead and do it. Um, no need to direct somebody, uh, no, no need to direct somebody to do it. Um, you know, while you do it, and while I do it, I try to amplify somebody else. So, you know, if if I make somebody take notes one time, the next time I'm amplifying them. Uh, so, so that that's kind of what I've, you know, what 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 I've what I've tried to do. Because if everybody's in the boardroom, if there are 15 people in the boardroom, that means there are 15 people who are qualified enough to be there and have opinions that matter. So nobody needs to be relegated. Um, everybody can do the dirty work, but also if people are in there, that means they've earned it to where they could be in there. So. I like that you highlighted like clap back, right? And that is one method and one way of fostering and becoming uh, a sponsor. I'm going to use the word sponsor and partner. Right, because when you sponsor someone, you're actually taking action. You are actually standing up and interfering and interjecting, saying, no, this is not happening, right? Because a lot of the times people can say, oh, I'm an ally, I'm gonna, uh, you know, I support you. But <laughs> supporting also means you're going to interfere, like step in and do something. So a clapback is a great way to interject and say, okay, we're gonna change things up. Uh, Anneli, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Oh, about the whole sponsorship thing? Yeah, yeah, no, I think when it's how we, you know, kind of put things into action, I think, well, I've never, you know, fortunately never really been in that position where somebody is like, you know, go get me coffee or like, you know, intern in like that sense. Um, after a while, like I was, you know, working with some, you know, people where they did ask me to take notes because I was like the research assistant. Um, so, and then after a while, like I had to be my own advocate, you know, I had to sit there and, you know, say, you know, this, these minutes having extra meetings about minutes, like, unfortunately it's just not fitting into my schedule. It's, you know, not the best use of my time. And actually I wasn't on like the organization's payroll. I was paid by another group. So I had to actually like advocate for myself and it would have been nice to kind of have somebody to like, you know, go to and, you know, say these things and have somebody not have like, why do I have to advocate for myself? Right. Like I would hope that I had like a mentor or someone who noticed that that was even happening and everyone else, it kind of just went over their head and, you know, it had been, you know, within that structure and within like that organization I was part of, it was typical that they give it to like the lowest person on the ladder, you know? not the VPs, not the, you know, academics, not, you know, board members and things like that. And um, nobody ever advocated for anyone. And so when I advocated for myself, it was like, oh, you know, um, not, not a good reaction to it. So I think now when I like move forward and things like I make sure 
you know, the people who were new to the organization, like I made sure I went out of my way to like talk to them, engage with them to not make them feel othered. Um, you know, noticing, you know, if there's any sort of patterns, you know, speaking up, piping up about it. Um, I haven't been in like that kind of situation recently, um, you know, having moved on to, you know, different organizations and moving on really in a different field. Um, but I think it's important to, you know, stand up for other people and stand up for people who aren't in the room. Um, I've tried to do that in like spaces that I'm in. If I've noticed that, you know, space is super white, well, I'm going to think about, you know, things that I've read or like, you know, even social media is kind of good to see like, you know, metric, you know, gauge for the community, like different communities that, you know, exist and that aren't represented in that space. So I think it's, you know, you have to, I think, be there for people, know that, you know, you're there for them, know that you're going to listen to them and, you know, sponsorship in that sense. And yeah, advocate for them too. Um, you know, if you are, you know, you notice that somebody's doing something, maybe introduce, Hey, you know, let's have somebody else take the minutes so we can have this person fully engaged today, you know, or, you know, it's really stressing this person out. Like this is a bad time for that person. Let's, you know, do that. So I think it's just, being really cognizant and it's about having more empathy in these situations and not forgetting where you were because i think when people get up to these you know high rungs they just okay you know i'm cool with stepping on other people and you do have to be you know thinking about these things mila so i want to tag on something that you brought up uh sponsorship so you know I, i'm sure a lot of people uh, I'm sure a lot of people watching this video have read the book, The Memo by Minda Hartz. And, uh, you know, one thing we talk about to sort of squash toxic femininity uh, in, in the workplace is, you know, women being, or people in general being success partners. And a success partner, it's not an ally, it's not anything like that. A success partner is you take some amount of risk um, to help bolster uh, somebody else. And a lot of time, you know, it is a person of color. It is, um, you know, somebody of a different gender, but you, you are a partner in their success in the workplace. And, uh, you know, I think that is how you squash a lot of the toxicity in the workplace is, you know, by with that, with that person of power, sponsoring somebody then you that's how you ampli that's how you amplify their voice and and that's truly how you how you bring people up now and i also want to highlight that that book is also written by a woman of color so it's written by a black woman so if you want to do that yeah let's support and uplift and you know use our money to you know help amplify other voices too right now i like the points that uh, you made um, only about you know being your own advocate but at the same time i want to highlight a really really important point for a, the, a lot of reality like a lot of women of color or people of color's reality is such that even though they become their own advocate there are a lot of gatekeeping that goes on so to Adam's point, you know, to being a, a success partner or sponsorship, right? Taking someone as a risk and really pushing them up. When someone <laughs> is constantly pushed down, you know, but as they are advocating for themselves, saying, no, I'm not going to take notes. Uh, it happened to me before, right? Like, 
a VP asked me to take notes and I politely said, no, I'm not going to next, uh, make, uh, take notes because we have an automated system and I'd like to participate in the meeting today. So I recorded the meeting and then I got a pushback saying, no, we need to have privacy, right? And then I pushed back again saying, nope, the recording is absolutely private and then we're gonna send it to the IT department, which is our internal department and they're gonna transcribe it. And I got another pushback saying, saying, no, I'm telling you to do this. And then I pushed back saying, I understand that you're telling me to do this, but at the same time, I do have an option to deny it and say I want to participate in it, right? And again, the themes of advocating for oneself, I didn't have any sponsors or any, I didn't have any clapbacks. I had to advocate for myself. And these are the reality, right? Real situations that a lot of women of color or people of color are experiencing at the workplace where they are advocating for themselves but they do get pushbacks um in the form of you know dismissive narratives or oppressive narratives where power is used against them saying no i'm telling you to do so no i'm your boss no this is your job even though it's not anyone's job to take notes everyone's job becomes taking notes because you're taking notes to for your own reference right so in those situations i want to highlight no matter how much someone becomes an advocate for themselves or person of color there's going to be a lot of pushbacks and and i wanted to highlight those toxic femininity that comes yeah. uh, to adam's point you mentioned about you know femininity and toxic masculinity are different things but at the same time we do see toxic of femininity being mirrored as toxic masculinity at the workplace. Only you want to say something. And I want to kind of, yeah, push, I mean, not push back, um, just piggyback off of what you're saying too, is what you're talking about, like women, particularly women of color advocating for themselves. And I don't think any of us realize how exhausting, you know, that process is, mm -hmm. is continuously. And I'm sure you can definitely speak to it. Just how, you know, I feel, you know, just exhausted, you know, maybe even feelings of emptiness and just feeling absolutely depleted. And it's, you know, I don't necessarily think it's looked favorably upon if like when women of color really take that space and advocate, you know, for themselves or take time, mm -hmm. you know, I think that I do kind of feel maybe it's more, you know, kind of speaking in like, you know, the land next, you know, community is just where women mm -hmm. give and give and give and take care of others where there's a loss of taking care of yourself. And I think it's really important to acknowledge like the struggles and the strength it takes to advocate for yourself. And I think it's time if you see like a woman of color has to keep advocating for herself, give her space, you know, maybe, I don't know, do something nice too, because it's exhausting. It's an exhausting process. I feel like it's just hard to live in that day in and day out. And, you know, I think it's just to kind of keep it in the back of your mind if you work with, you know, women of color, just, you know, we've seen it, you know, I think we, especially COVID has really made it apparent of like the struggles that black women go through right. and just want to make sure we can uplift them at the same time. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. It, it is exhausting. <laughs> and I hear from a lot of colored women and even colored men, right? Um, like Adam, you, you brought up a really great point as to the nuance as to how even within a community that is a discrimination, right? But a lot of the times people don't see this layer happening where toxic femininity with the white women, how that 
is used to even oppress um, vulnerable feminine uh, colored men. Because some colored men from different communities, different countries, they do not feel ashamed of being vulnerable, right? Um, they they speak uh, like their love language is like speaking in, in a very affectionate manner or you know being soft speaking and that's just their culture as well. But that can be taken in a wrong manner by by toxic femininity, right? And I've seen this happening at the workplace as well. So. I want to transition into resolutions. I don't want to say solutions because there's there's not one solution that fits all, but uh, and uh, uh, resolution is always changing, right? So let's come into the resolution aspect of it. Um, you know, both of you mentioned about being a sponsor and being a success partner, and Adam, you touched on men specifically. You know how we can uh, clap back. So let's explore some resolution as to how can we truly become a sponsor success partner for colored women when we see a, a white woman oppressing them or suppressing them at the workplace? What is one thing that we can do that at the same time where we can create a safe space and, and we can combat the retaliation because we need to think about how that person is going to retaliate, not just against the success partner but against the colored person as well so i want to hear your thoughts on this so i think for me one thing that i like to do when there is a situation that is not really good is to one kind of check in on the person who's kind of like the victim in that um conversation and um you know just to see like you know how are you doing like how are you feeling right now just to make sure that they're okay and I think sometimes it's also asking like, hey, how would you like me to move forward? This is maybe the way that I would think, but I want to do something that you're comfortable with too. Because um, we don't also, you know, want to put anyone in an awkward spot and we don't want, you know, retaliation. So, because sometimes like my thing, you know, I can't always be there to kind of look out for, you know, that person maybe potentially. And I want to make sure that there is no, you know, bad consequences to that. So I think it's one just to check in and, you know, kind of show that you care too for, you know, the person who has been, you know, mistreated in these workplace situations. So I think that's really helpful for healing. And then to also like ask them, you know, what are steps moving forward? You know, if it's something, you know, that's a really big deal because we know that there are potential negative consequences Um, because, you know, maybe me calling out all the, you know, people all the time, you know, I don't want to, you know, have really bad consequences for the people in that space as well, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think in this case, you know, we, we talk about how how to resolve it and everything like that. I think, uh, you know, it's important, especially in the workplace to have a to have leaders with a strong backbone, um, to have leaders, you know, who are empathetic, to have leaders who, you know, they who are. I think this is where you bring up like how to be actively anti-racist. You know, you have you and leaders that truly believe in equity. Um, because if you see somebody uh, throw, you know, throwing around that toxicity in the workplace and especially around people of color, um, and you know, you have an HR department and you have leaders who aren't actively seeking out equitable policies or anything like that. 
um, you know, equitable policies or equitable action, uh, you are going to burn these people out and you're like, those people of color working in your organization are going to leave, are, are going to leave en masse. So uh, really, you know, in this case, it's important to have these equitable policies and have policies against retaliation and understand what retaliation looks like, but also have equitable performance management structures as well, where you can coach these leaders because sometimes like there are leaders who, and, and I know, I know some of them who they've climbed their way up, but, and yeah, sure. They may have political savvy um, in a very homogenous workplace, but they don't have that culturally conscious savvy. And that is the, I think that is the issue a lot of times with, um, with a lot of conflict in the workplace is yes, people glide up through that, pol that political sphere, but um, they aren't culturally conscious enough to understand uh, how to manage, inspire, lead, uh, and amplify uh, other people in the workplace. You brought up a really good point about performance management, right, and being culturally conscious. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I heard this talk about uh, from Simon Sinek, and he mentioned something that just because someone who brings in a million dollars does not mean that he or she is going to make a fantastic leader, and that saves a lot, right? And in organizations, and this has been the case for in organizations for the past 20 years, where we promote people who bring in the fiscal, uh, fiscal higher points, right? Like who can bring a million dollars in? Who is hitting all the targets? And that ties in with leadership. That is where the huge gap lies because we have been looking at what performance, what productivity is from a very wrong lens. We have been looking at it from a very capitalistic perspective, right? And we're treating people as though they are robots and not treating people as though they are humans with a beating heart. Um, and, and to your point in being culturally conscious, it's also about understanding how different people need to have a psychological safe space in order to perform, in order to 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 unleash their potential, right? Can you imagine where where you are the greatest mountain climber, and I go put you on top of this this highest mountain, surrounded by lions, tigers, and bears, right? It's it, it's like you, you're already you're already accustomed to being safe or on. A mountain, but when you add more variables like lions, tigers, and bears, and snakes, and whatever uh, harmful creatures around you, that's going to add more stress, and that's going to impact your psychological state of mind, and and that impacts in the way you think, you behave. It causes tunnel vision, right? Because when you're fearful, when you're not confident, your vision kind of like gets compromised. How you're seeing the view. And when your vision gets compromised or your ability to perform, think or speak gets compromised, you will not be able to perform at peak, uh, peak level. So those are some of the elements that leaders need to understand in order to really think from a very diverse, inclusive perspective. Um, I know we are running out of time. So 
to <laughs> to wrap up, right, to, to truly dismantle toxic femininity with white women and to enable diversity, we have touched on so many different points, right, being an ally, being an advocate for ourselves, being a success partner and really digging deeper into policies. But I want to hear one one point, one step, one action from each of you that you are taking right now in your spaces to truly become a success partner for your your community of coloured people. Yeah. So luckily for me, I work with kids. So uh, I work with middle schoolers. So I think one thing for me, what I started doing, especially this year, was being more um, focused on providing literature and telling stories about people of color. Um, you know, maybe stories away from like, you know, maybe ableist characters or telling stories, getting books that where kids actually went through struggles, you know, people that they can relate to um, and showing that, you know, there are so many stories to be told and you can maybe see yourself in some of these stories. So I think it's just about being intentional and I mean, because I teach English. So it's just to make sure is made sure that, you know, creating spaces where kids know that they can be safe and that they're represented and that somebody actually kind of cares for them and crafted something with, you know, their minds in mind and like just caring for them. So I think it's, that's something that I've been working on, you know, as I'm designing the classroom and things like that and made sure that I could get good books and and doing that. And then as we go through the year, you know, making sure that our, you know, luckily for our curriculum is super into social justice and has works that are, you know, different, um, kind of going away from, you know, the classics, but I think still really showing and still teaching the exact same thing. So I'm glad that, you know, I found an organization that's pretty intentional with that and wants to uplift and use education in a good way. Uh, yeah, so for me, I'm, I'm doing it in a variety of ways. So I'm in the HR recruiting employer brand space. Um, so, you know, number one is if, you know, somebody else can say it, um, you know, somebody who might be a minority or a female or something like that, I'm going to amplify them. Um, and so, you know, that's what I'm doing in terms of social media or like if people ask me about like DEI work, I make sure to introduce them uh, to those who have actual lived experiences. Um, number two is right now, you know, working with people in various recruiting contracts to build diverse pipelines, um, under, and not only, not only like just saying, oh, like we're going to hire diverse candidates, but understanding like where the source of where those candidates come from. So helping people identify, uh, you know, HBCUs or, uh, minority affiliated groups working with, uh, ERGs. Um, and then the last one is myself and, and uh, another white male. We've actually started a DEI and HR group where we uh, book club, where we actually read books uh, from black authors about uh, the black experience. So Mint Hearts happened to be our uh, first one. Um, and uh, I, a book by G. Carter Woodson is our second one. So, you know, helping people understand what goes on in the workplace and then has what has gone on historically um, are, are, are two things that we're trying to do. So, you know, trying to first uh, help people understand the source of where they can get things, um, amplifying, um, and, then, and then teaching people. 
Beautiful, beautiful. And to add to that, um, one of the things that I am doing as a person of colour, as an immigrant, <laughs> as a woman, right, um, is is really advocating for for women, women of colour especially, in how they can progress in their careers, right? By I've been having a lot of conversations with different HR teams, uh, with DEI teams as well, and truly understanding, you know, like diversity means not just one race because we need to have those difficult conversations as well and how do we progress those colored minority groups along the career and really innovating how performance is like how promotion is how do we view all of that because that has been coming from a very singular lens and from the concept and definition of a dominant culture as well so these are all the efforts that we have been doing, folks, you know, through Annalie, through Adam and to myself. And today we have been talking about dismantling toxic femininity with the white women at the workplace. And if you have got anything to add, please do write in the comments or, you know, you can send an email to the show. I'll put that email below. But that's all the time that we have. Um, remember that in order to create a healthy, diverse culture, we have to deep dive into real issues that are present, but often treated as though they are invisible, right? Um, and and these issues are often weaponized. Uh, you know, we hear about white women weaponizing their femininity, we hear them weaponizing their tears, but we truly need to break these issues and have honest conversations. And culture isn't only about ping pong tables. And I say this again, Culture isn't only about ping pong tables, free tidbits, happy hours, free lunch or free dinner, whatever it is. It is about creating a psychological safe space for all of your people to thrive with equity. When we talk about equity, it is giving equal opportunity and really enforcing and becoming success partners for them where they can thrive, where diversity and humanity becomes an integrated effort. Hardship is what we must practice, as what both my guys Adam and Anneli had mentioned about empathy, right? When we lead with empathy, compassion, love, and kindness, we will truly understand how people want to be accepted, thus creating an evolving culture. That's all the time that we have, beautiful people. Join us next week, Friday, 7 p.m., where I will be dismantling something else again, Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Annalie, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.